Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 14 Miss Crawley at Home About this time, there drove up to a well-appointed house in Park Lane, a carriage with a discontented female in a green veil on the outside seat and a large confidential man on the box. The carriage belonged to Miss Crawley, returning from Hampshire. Its windows were shut. The fat spaniel sat on the lap of the discontented female. When the vehicle stopped, a large round bundle of shawls was removed from it by servants and a young lady. That bundle contained Miss Crawley, who was taken upstairs and put into a bed warm for the reception of an invalid. Messengers were sent off for her medical men. They came, consulted, prescribed, vanished. Miss Crawley's young companion came in to receive their instructions and gave her medicines for fever, which the doctors ordered. Captain Crawley of the lifeguards rode up from Knightsbridge Barracks the next day on his black charger. He was most affectionate in his inquiries about his aunt. He found Miss Crawley's maid, the discontented female, unusually sulky, he found Miss Briggs, her paid companion, in tears because she was denied admission to Miss Crawley's room. A stranger was giving her medicines, an odious Miss... Oh, tears choked her words, and she buried her red nose in her handkerchief. Rodden Crawley sent up his name. Miss Crawley's new companion, tripping down from the sick room, put a little hand into his as he stepped forward eagerly to meet her. With a scornful glance at Briggs, she led the young guardsman into the empty dialing parlour. Here, these two talked for ten minutes, discussing, no doubt, the symptoms of the old invalid above stairs. Then the captain came out, curling his mustachios, and mounted the black charger, to the admiration of the little boys in the street. He looked in at the dining-room window. For one instant, the young person was seen before she went upstairs again to resume her caring duties. Who could this young woman be, I wonder? That evening, a dinner for two was laid in the dining room, and after Mrs. Firkin, the lady's maid, pushed into her mistress's room, the new nurse and Miss Briggs sat down to their meal. Briggs was so choked by emotion that she could hardly eat. The young person delicately carved a fowl and asked so distinctly for exhaust that poor Briggs started, made a great clattering with the ladle, and fell back in a hysterical state. "'Had you not better give Miss Briggs a glass of wine?' said the person to Mr. Bowles, the large, confidential man who was the butler. Briggs seized the glass, gulped it down convulsively, moaned, and began to play with the chicken on her plate." "'I think we have no further need of Mr. Bowles' kind services,' said the person suavely. "'Mr. Bowles, we will ring you when we want you.' 
Once he had left, she added with a cool, slightly sarcastic air, "'It is a pity you take on so, Miss Briggs.' "'My dearest friend is so ill and won't see me,' gurgled Briggs in an agony of grief. "'She's not very ill any more. "'Console yourself, dear Miss Briggs. "'She is only overeaten. "'She will soon be better.' "'Pray, console yourself and take a little more wine. "'But why won't she see me?' Miss Briggs bleated. "'Oh, Matilda, after three and twenty years' tenderness, "'is this the return to your poor Arabella?' "'Don't cry too much, poor Arabella,' the other said. "'She only won't see you because she says you don't nurse her as well as I do.' It's no pleasure to me to sit up all night. I wish you might do it instead. Have I not tended that dear couch for years? Arabella said. And now? Now she prefers somebody else. Well, sick people must be humored. When she's well, I shall go. Never. <laughs> Never. Arabella exclaimed, madly inhaling her smelling salts. "'Never be well or never go, Miss Briggs.' "'Oh, pooh! She will be well in a fortnight, "'and I shall go back to my pupils at Queen's Crawley "'and to their mother, who is a great deal more sick than our friend. "'You need not be jealous, my dear Miss Briggs. "'I am a poor little harmless girl without any friends. "'I don't want to replace you.' Miss Crawley will forget me a week after I am gone, and her affection for you has been the work of years. Oh, give me a little wine, please, my dear Miss Briggs, and let us be friends. I'm sure I need friends. The soft-hearted Briggs speechlessly pushed out her hand at this appeal, but she felt the desertion keenly for all that, and bitterly moaned the fickleness of her Matilda. At the end of the meal, Miss Rebecca Sharp, for such astonishingly is the name of the nurse, went upstairs again to her patient's rooms, from which she politely eliminated poor Firkin. Thank you, that will do. I will ring when anything is wanted. Firkin came downstairs in a tempest of jealousy. As she passed the first floor landing, Briggs, who had been on the watch for her, opened the door. Well, Firkin, said she, "'Worse and worse, Miss B.' Firkin said, wagging her head. Well, "'Is she not better, then?' "'She only spoke once, when she told me to hold my stupid tongue. "'Oh, Miss B., I never thought to have seen this day.' "'What sort of a person is this, Miss Sharp, Firkin? "'I little thought to find a stranger had taken my place in the affections of my dearest, "'my still dearest Matilda.' Miss Briggs was of a literary and sentimental turn, and had once published a volume of poems, Trills of the Nightingale. "'They are all infatuated with that young woman,' Firkin replied. "'Sir Pitt wouldn't have let her go, but he daren't refuse Miss Crawley. Mrs. Butte at the rectory just as bad. The captain quite wild about her. Mr. Crawley mortal jealous.' "'Since Miss C. was took ill, she won't have nobody near her but Miss Sharp. "'I can't tell for why. I think something has bewitched everybody.' "'Rebecca passed that night watching over Miss Crawley. 
The next night, the old lady slept comfortably, so that Rebecca had several hours' rest on the sofa at the foot of the bed. Very soon, Miss Crawley was so well that she sat up and laughed at Rebecca's imitation of Miss Briggs and her weeping sniffle. Miss Crawley became quite cheerful, to the admiration of her doctors, who usually found her depressed by the least sickness and in the most abject terror of death. Captain Crawley came every day and received bulletins from Miss Rebecca about his aunt's health. Poor Briggs was allowed to see her patroness, and soon Miss Crawley liked to have Briggs in a good deal, for Rebecca used to mimic her with the most admirable gravity. The causes of Miss Crawley's illness were of such an unromantic nature that they are hardly fit to be explained in this genteel novel. For how is it possible to hint that a delicate female ate and drank too much, and that a hot supper of lobsters at the rectory was the reason for her sickness? The attack was so sharp that all the family were in a fever of expectation about the will, and Rawdon Crawley felt sure of forty thousand pounds before long. Mr. Crawley sent over a parcel of tracts to prepare her for the change from Vanity Fair for another world. But a doctor vanquished the lobster and gave her sufficient strength to return to London. While everybody was attending on Miss Crawley, there was a lady in another part of the house at Queen's Crawley being exceedingly ill, of whom no one took any notice, and this was Lady Crawley herself. The good doctor shook his head after seeing her, and she was left fading away in her lonely chamber, with no more heed paid to her than to a weed in the park. The young ladies lost their governess. Miss Sharp was so affectionate a nurse that Miss Crawley would take her medicines from no other hand. Captain Rawdon got leave and remained dutifully at home. He was always in her antechamber. If he came down the corridor ever so quietly, his father's door was sure to open, and the hyena face of the old gentleman glared out. Why should one watch the other so? A generous rivalry, no doubt, as to which should be most attentive to the dear sufferer. Rebecca used to come out and bring them news of the invalid. At dinner, she kept the peace between them, after which she disappeared for the night. She passed a weary fortnight in Miss Crawley's sick room, but her little nerves seemed to be of iron, and she was quite unshaken by the duty of the sick chamber. She never told until long afterwards how painful that duty was, and how peevish her patient, how angry and sleepless, and in what horrors of death, so that she lay moaning in agonies about that future world which she ignored when she was in good health. Miss Sharp watched this graceless bedside patiently. She was never out of temper, always alert. She slept light and could do so at a minute's warning. So you saw very few traces of fatigue in her appearance. Her face might be a trifle paler, and the circles round her eyes a little darker than usual. But whenever she came out from the sick room, she was always smiling, fresh and neat. The captain raved about her. The barbed shaft of love had penetrated his dull hide. Six weeks had victimized him completely. 
He told his aunt at the rectory, of all people, and she admitted that Little Sharp was the most clever, droll, odd, kind creature in England. Rodden must not trifle with her affections, though, she said. Dear Miss Crawley would never pardon him for that, for she loved Sharp like a daughter. Rodden must go away, back to his regiment and naughty London, and not play with the poor artless girl's feelings. Many a time this good-natured lady, pitying the forlorn lifeguardsman, gave him an opportunity of seeing Miss Sharp at the rectory and of walking home with her. Rawdon saw there was a clear intention on Mrs. Bute's part to captivate him with Rebecca. He was not very wise, but he was a man about town. A light dawned upon his dusky soul, as he thought, during a speech of Mrs. Bute's. "'Mark my words, Rawdon,' she said. "'You will have Miss Sharp one day for your relation.' "'Not Pitt. He shan't have her. He's booked to Lady Jane Sheepshanks.' You men perceive nothing, you silly blind creature. If anything happens to Lady Crawley, Miss Sharp will be your stepmother. That's what will happen. Rawdon Crawley gave vent to a prodigious whistle of astonishment. His father's liking for Miss Sharp had not escaped him. He knew the unscrupulous old gentleman's character well, and he walked home, curling his mustachios, and convinced he had discovered Mrs. Bute's intentions. "'By Jove! It's too bad,' thought Rodden. "'I do believe the woman wants the poor girl to be ruined, so that she shouldn't come into the family as Lady Crawley.' When he saw Rebecca alone, he rallied her about his father's attachment. She flung up her head scornfully, looked him full in the face, and said, "'Well, Suppose he is fond of me. Don't you suppose I can defend my own honor, Captain Crawley? Oh, uh, I well, give you give you fair warning, that's all, said the mustachio twiddler. You hint at something not honorable, then, said she, flashing out. Oh, God, really, Miss Rebecca, do you suppose I have no self-respect because I am poor and friendless, and because rich people have none? Do you think... "'Because I am a governess, I have not as much sense and good breeding as you gentlefolks in Hampshire. "'I'm a Montmorency. Do you suppose a Montmorency is not as good as a Crawley?' "'Miss Sharp spoke so charmingly in her clear, ringing voice. "'No,' she continued, "'I can endure poverty, but not shame, neglect, but not insult. "'An insult from, from you!' she burst into tears. Oh, hang it, Miss Sharp. Rebecca. Oh, by Jove, upon my soul, I, I wouldn't for a thousand pounds. But she was gone. At dinner, she was unusually brilliant and lively, but she would take no notice of the hints of the infatuated guardsman. Skirmishes of this sort happened perpetually. The Crawley heavy cavalry was maddened by defeat and routed every day. When they went to London, the old baronet missed Rebecca. Queen's Crawley seemed a desert without her, so useful and pleasant had she made herself there. Sir Pitt's letters were not copied and corrected. His accounts were not made up. His household business was neglected now that his little secretary was away. 
and it was easy to see how necessary such a secretary was to him by the spelling of the numerous letters which he sent to her and Miss Crawley, begging for her return. Miss Crawley took very little heed of these letters. Though the old lady would not hear of Rebecca's departure, she did not give her a regular position. Like many wealthy people, Miss Crawley would accept as much service as she could get from her inferiors and take leave of them when she no longer found them useful. Gratitude among certain rich folks is scarcely to be thought of. They take people's services as their due. And I am not sure that, in spite of Rebecca's simplicity and untiring good humor, the shrewd old London lady had not a lurking suspicion of her nurse. It must have crossed Miss Crawley's mind that nobody does anything for nothing. Well, meanwhile, Becky was the greatest comfort and convenience, and Miss Crawley gave her a couple of new gowns and an old necklace and shawl, and meditated vaguely some great future benefit. To marry her, perhaps, to clump the apothecary, or to settle her in some way, or, at any rate, to send her back to Queen's Crawley when she had done with her and the London season had begun. When Miss Crawley was convalescent and had descended to the drawing-room, Becky sang to her and amused her and accompanied her when she drove out. One day, where of all places in the world did Miss Crawley decide to drive to but Russell Square and the house of John Sedley, Esquire? Many notes had passed between the two dear friends, but during Rebecca's stay in Hampshire, the eternal friendship had grown feeble. Both girls had their own affairs to think of. When they now met and flew into each other's arms, Rebecca performed her embrace with the most perfect briskness. Poor little Amelia blushed as she kissed her friend and thought she had been guilty of coldness towards her. Their first meeting was very short. Amelia was just ready to go out for a walk. Miss Crawley was waiting in her carriage below, her people wondering at the locality in which they found themselves and gazing upon honest Samuel, the footman, as one of the queer natives of the place. But when Amelia came down so that Rebecca could introduce her, Miss Crawley was captivated by her sweet, blushing face as she timidly paid her respects. "'What a complexion, my dear! What a sweet voice!' Miss Crawley said as they drove away afterwards. "'My dear Sharp, your young friend is charming. Send for her to Park Lane, do you hear?' Miss Crawley had good taste. She liked natural manners and pretty faces, as she liked pretty pictures and nice china. She talked of Amelia with rapture and mentioned her to Rawdon Crawley, who came to dine. Of course, at this, Rebecca instantly stated that Amelia was engaged to be married to a Lieutenant Osborne, a very old flame. Oh, I think I know his regiment, Captain Crawley said. The captain's name is Dobbin, she said. A lanky, gawky fellow, said Crawley, tumbles over everybody. I know him, and Osborne's a goodish-looking fellow with large black whiskers. Enormous! said Rebecca, and enormously proud of him, I assure you. Captain Broad and Crawley burst into a laugh. Osborne fancies he can play billiards, said he. I won two hundred from him at the cocoa tree before Captain Dobbin carried him off, hang him. 
Rawdon, don't be so wicked, Miss Crawley remarked, highly pleased. Why, ma'am, of all the young fellows I've seen, I think this fellow's the greenest. Tarquin and Ducey's get what money they like out of him. He'd go to the deuce to be seen with a lord. He pays their dinners at Greenwich, and they invite the company. And very pretty company, too, I dare say. Oh, quite right, Miss Sharp, as usual. Uncommon pretty company. <laughs> Rodden, don't be naughty, his aunt exclaimed. Well, his father's a city man, immensely rich, they say. Hang those city fellows, they must bleed. And I've not done with them yet, I can tell you. <laughs> Fie, Captain Crawley, I shall warn Amelia, a gambling husband. Oh, horrid, ain't it, hey? <laughs> the captain said, and then added, as a sudden thought struck him, God, man, we'll have him here. Is he presentable? The aunt asked. Oh, well enough, Captain Crawley answered. Do let's have him when Miss Sedley comes. I'll write him a note and see if he can play piquet as well as billiards. <laughs> a few days later, Lieutenant Osborne received a letter in Captain Rawdon's schoolboy hand, enclosing an invitation from Miss Crawley. Rebecca sent an invitation to her darling Amelia, who was ready to accept it when she heard that George was to be there. Amelia spent the morning with the ladies of Park Lane, who were very kind to her. Rebecca patronized her with calm superiority. Amelia yielded to her orders with perfect meekness. Miss Crawley continued her raptures about little Amelia, talked about her as if she were a doll, and admired her with benevolent wonder. There is no more agreeable sight than to see Mayfair folks condescending. Miss Crawley's benevolence rather fatigued poor Amelia, and I am not sure that of the three ladies in Park Lane she did not find honest Miss Briggs the most agreeable. She sympathized with Briggs as with all neglected or gentle people. George came to dinner with Captain Crawley. Rawdon praised his play at billiards and asked when he would have his revenge, was interested about Osborne's regiment, and would have proposed piquet that very evening, but Miss Crawley forbade gambling in her house, so the young lieutenant's purse was not lightened by his gallant patron, that day at least. However, they made an engagement for the next, to look at a horse that Crawley had to sell, and to try him in the park, and to dine together, and to pass the evening with some jolly fellows. That is, if you're not on duty to that pretty Miss Sedley, Crawley said, with a knowing wink. Monstrous nice girl, though, Osborne. <laughs> Lots of tin, I suppose, eh? Osborne wasn't on duty. He would join Crawley with pleasure. "'How's little Miss Sharp, by the by?' Osborne inquired of his friend over their wine. "'Good-natured little girl, that. Does she suit you well at Queen's Crawley? Miss Sedley liked her a good deal last year.' Captain Crawley looked savagely at the lieutenant and watched him when he went up to greet Rebecca. Her conduct must have relieved Crawley of any jealousy. Osborne walked up to her with a patronizing, easy swagger, saying, "'Ah, Miss Sharp, how'd you do?' He held out his hand towards her, expecting that she would be quite confounded at this honor. Miss Sharp put out her right forefinger and gave him a little nod, 
so cool and killing that Rawdon, watching from the other room, could hardly restrain his laughter as he saw the lieutenant's discomfiture, the start he gave, and the clumsiness with which he at length took the offered finger and asked her how she liked her new place. "'My place?' said Miss Sharp, coolly. "'How kind of you to remind me of it. "'It's a tolerably good place. "'The wages are pretty good. "'How are your sisters? "'Not that I ought to ask.' "'Why not?' Mr. Osborne said. "'Why they never condescended to speak to me "'whilst I was staying with Amelia. "'But we poor governesses, you know, "'are used to slights of this sort.' "'My dear Miss Sharp!' Osborne exclaimed. At least in some families. It is different in Hampshire. We are not so wealthy in Hampshire as you lucky folks of the city, but I am in a gentleman's family. Good old English stock. I suppose you know Sir Pitt's father refused a peerage? And you see how I am treated. I am pretty comfortable. But how very good of you to inquire. Osborne was quite savage. The little governess patronized him until he felt most uneasy, nor could he find a pretext for backing out of this conversation. "'I thought you liked the city families pretty well,' he said, haughtily. "'Last year, you mean? When I was fresh from that horrid, vulgar school? Of course I did. How was I to know any better? But, oh, Mr. Osborne, what a difference eighteen months' experience makes. Eighteen months spent—' Oh, pardon me for saying so, with gentlemen. As for dear Amelia, she is a pearl, and would be charming anywhere. There now, I see you are beginning to be in a good humor. Oh, and Mr. Joss, how is that wonderful Mr. Joseph? It seems to me you didn't dislike that wonderful Mr. Joseph last year, Osborne said. Well, I didn't break my heart about him. Yet, if he had asked me, I wouldn't have said no. Mr. Osborne gave her a look as if to say, "'Indeed, how very obliging. "'What an honour to have had you for a brother-in-law, you are thinking. "'To be sister-in-law to George Osborne, Esquire, "'son of George Osborne, Esquire, "'son of—oh, what was your grandpapa, Mr. Osborne? "'Oh, don't be angry. "'You can't help your pedigree. "'And I quite agree with you that I would have married Mr. Joe Sedley.' For how could a penniless girl do better? Now you know the whole secret. I'm frank and open. It was very kind of you to allude to it, very kind and polite. Amelia, dear, Mr. Osborne and I were talking about your brother Joseph. How is he? Thus was George utterly routed. Not that Rebecca was in the right, but she had managed most successfully to put him in the wrong, and he shamefully fled. George could not help cleverly confiding to Captain Crawley next day that Miss Rebecca was a sharp, dangerous one, a desperate flirt, with which Crawley agreed laughingly, and passed on to Rebecca before twenty-four hours were over. This added to her original regard for Mr. Osborne. She guessed that it was George who had interrupted the success of her first love passage, and she esteemed him accordingly. George told Amelia of how he had counselled Rawdon Crawley, a devilish good, straightforward fellow, to be on his guard against that little, sly, scheming Rebecca. Against whom? Remy. Against whom? Amelia cried. Your friend the governess, 
Oh, don't look so astonished. Oh, George, what have you done? Amelia said, for she had instantly discovered a secret which was invisible to Miss Crawley, to Briggs, and above all, to that young whiskered prig, Lieutenant Osborne. When the two girls had an opportunity for a little private talk, Amelia, taking her friend's hand, said, Rebecca, I see it all. Rebecca kissed her, and regarding this delightful secret, not one syllable more was said by either, but it was destined to come out before long. A short time after these events, while Miss Rebecca Sharp was still staying at Park Lane, a funerary coat of arms appeared over Sir Pitt Crawley's house. Sir Pitt was a widower again. Mr. Crawley had tended that otherwise friendless bedside. His stepmother went out of the world strengthened by such words and comfort as he could give her. For many years, his was the only kindness Lady Crawley ever knew, the only friendship that solaced that feeble, lonely soul. Her heart was dead long before her body. She had sold it to become Sir Pitt Crawley's wife. Mothers and daughters are making the same bargain every day in Vanity Fair. When she died, her husband was in London attending to his schemes, busy with his endless lawyers. He had found time, nevertheless, to call often in Park Lane, and to send many notes to Rebecca, entreating her to return to her young pupils in the country. But Miss Crawley would not hear of her departure for she was not yet tired of Rebecca, and she clung to her with the greatest energy. The news of Lady Crawley's death provoked no more grief or comment than might have been expected in Miss Crawley's family circle. "'I suppose I must put off my party for the third, Miss Crawley said, and added, after a pause, "'I hope my brother will have the decency not to marry again.' "'What a confounded rage Pitt will be in if he does,' Rawdon remarked, with his usual regard for his brother. Rebecca said nothing. She seemed by far the gravest and most impressed of the family. She left the room, but had a talk with Rawdon before he went away. The next day, as Rebecca was gazing from the window, she startled Miss Crawley by crying out in an alarmed tone, "'Here, Sir Pitt, ma'am!' The baronet's knock followed this announcement. "'My dear, I can't see him. Say I'm too ill to receive anyone,' cried out Miss Crawley, resuming her French novel. "'She's too ill to see you, sir,' Rebecca said, tripping down to Sir Pitt. "'So much the better,' Sir Pitt answered. "'I want to see you, Miss Becky. Come along of me into the parlour.' They entered that room together. "'I want you back at Queen's Crawley, miss,' the baronet said, fixing his gaze upon her and taking off his black gloves and his hat with his black hatband. His eyes had such a strange, fixed look that Rebecca Sharp began almost to tremble. "'I hope to come soon,' she said in a low voice, "'and return to the dear children.' "'You said so these three months, Becky,' replied Sir Pitt, and still you go hanging on to my sister, who fling you off like an old shoe when she's wore you out. I tell you, I want you. I'm going back to the funeral. Will you come back, yes or no? I, 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 I daren't. I, 
I don't think it would be right to be alone with you, sir, Becky said, seemingly in great agitation. I say again, I want you, Sir Pitt said, thumping the table. I can't get on without you. I didn't realize till you went away. The house goes all wrong. It's not the same place. All my accounts has got muddled. You must come back. Oh, do, do come back, dear Becky, do come. Come? As, as what, sir? Comes, come as Lady Crawley, if you like, the baronet said. There, will that satisfy you? Come back and be my wife. I will birth be hanged. You're as good a lady as I ever see. You've got more brains in your little linger than any baronet's wife in the county. Will you come? Yes or no? Oh, Sir Pitt, Rebecca said, very much moved. Oh, say yes, Becky. I'm an old man, but I'm I'm good for twenty years. I'll make you happy. See if I don't. You shall do what you like, spend what you like, and have it all your own way. I'll make you a settlement. I'll do everything regular. And the old man fell down on his knees and leered at her like a satyr. Rebecca started back, a picture of consternation. During this history, we have never seen her lose her presence of mind, but she did now, and wept some of the most genuine tears that ever fell from her eyes. Oh, oh Sir Pitt, oh, oh, Sir, I'm, I'm married already. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.